This is another episode of Shades Midweek, a podcast where we talk about theology, culture, and all things Shades. My name is John Mark Garreau, and I'm recording this with my good friend Jonathan Hafes inside of Four Stream Studio. What's up, man? Man, I'm doing fantastic. We had a snow day. We did. Yes. That I was mean, exciting. It was that Alabama snow day anyway. Yeah. Uh, it was the strangest snow ever. It was like so light and airy. It was like cotton candy. Yeah, like for it, sure. It took insane effort to make a snowball. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, you know, we were in Cleveland the week before. Oh, yeah, you were up there with real snow. <laughs> and what was funny is, you know, we went sledding and, you know, they had tons of <laughs> It just snowed every day while we were there. Snow everywhere. And... The day that it snowed here in Alabama, we tried to get Moses and Zion to go outside. They they could have cared less. Just completely they're like, unimpressed. They're like, what is this? <laughs> this is not real snow. How dare you? Whereas my kids are freaking out, <laughs> right. trying to sled in it, basically sledding <laughs> right. down grass more than right. snow. It was so much fun. And I was bummed that I thought the snow was not going to melt because it was really stayed below freezing all day long, and yet it melted because it's Alabama. <laughs> Because science, something. Yeah, science, something science, science. I don't know. Talk to James Spann. <laughs> but because of that uh, snow day that we had, that day we actually had scheduled an interview with the president of the EFCA, Kevin Compline. That's right. Big things happening on the Shades <laughs> Midweek was, podcast. It was like a big thing that we had scheduled. So we had to unfortunately contact. Uh, his office and reschedule which we have and so we will be getting that episode to you all very soon we're really excited about that where does he live by the way do you know where is he i mean you know like all other people in the efca it's got to be somewhere in the midwest that's i can't I remember thinking. exactly he, where i'm I, trying to remember where our our national office is because that's got to be where he lives well my thought was that was probably really funny for him to get an email from some pastors in alabama being like hey we can't come into the office today because we have some snow on the ground <laughs> He's probably like, what a joke. <laughs> no, no, no. We're very excited about that interview, and that will be happening very, very soon. But since we didn't have that this week, uh, what what do we have planned for today, Jonathan? Well, it's it was a little bit of a busy week because, you know, it's the start of the Lenten season. We had the snow day. We had the Ash Wednesday service. And so because our planned episode didn't get to happen, we are going to do another uh, edition of Shade's Greatest Hits. Yes. <laughs> I need to come up with a theme song for this now. So, hit. so if you haven't heard one of those episodes before, basically we just take an old sermon and uh, play that as uh, as the podcast episode. So uh, the sermon that you're about to hear is from 2019. It's actually from the season of Lent in 2019 when we went through the book of Hosea. And this sermon specifically is entitled Real Repentance. And the, the reason I chose this one is because Lent is a season of repentance, and repentance is something that is so often misunderstood uh, by Christians. We, we think of repentance as a, a, a one-time thing. You know, so I I have repented of my sins. Christ has forgiven them, past, present, and future. So why in the world would repentance be a continued practice in my life? Um, and then we also think of repentance as a negative thing. Isn't it just me beating myself up for being a horrid, loathsome sinner who God <laughs> must despise? Like, And so we have all these kind of negative connotations or misunderstandings surrounding repentance, and it plays out practically in our lives. Is repentance a normal part of our life? Is, is the season of Lent something we should do since it's a season of repentance? Uh, in our services every week, we have a corporate confession of sin and a pardon of assurance. Should we do that? 
And so in the context of this sermon, I tried to tackle some of those type of questions and and first lay out what false repentance looks like, because that's really what Hosea is addressing in the text that we go through in this sermon. But what does false repentance look like? And then uh, on the flip side of that, what what is real repentance all about? So since we're entering into this season of repentance, I thought that would be uh, a great thing for us to revisit. Awesome. Yeah. So here is that sermon. So as we've just said, during this season of Lent, we have been journeying through the book of Hosea in a series entitled God, Gomer, and the Gospel. And I, uh, I chose that title because that is the threefold lens given to us in the first three chapters of this book. In Hosea chapters 1 through 3, God uses the prophet's personal life, Hosea's personal life, as a lens through which we can behold his relationship with his people, his relationship with us. If you remember, he calls the prophet Hosea to marry Gomer. Gomer, who will be an unfaithful, adulterous life. She will live an unfaithful, adulterous lifestyle that will ultimately actually land her in slavery. But even then, God calls Hosea to go and love her again. He calls him, go, buy back your bride. Buy her out of slavery. Bring her back to yourself. Redeem her. That's the lens. That's the lens through which we are to understand the rest of this book, which is about God's relationship as a faithful husband with his Gomer-like people who are unfaithful. And all throughout the book of Hosea, we have seen that they have gone after other lovers or gone after other, other gods. He has been the faithful husband. They, we, have been Gomer, the unfaithful bride. We've seen truth about God and about Gomer ourselves, but we've also seen gospel good news that our God is a God who redeems. We haven't just seen that in chapters 1 through 3. Is that not the very thing? Is this not the very story we've seen play out as we have continued through this book? If you remember in Hosea 4, the people's sins were laid bare, their unfaithful idolatry laid bare where they'd gone after other lovers, other gods. And so in Hosea 5, God pronounces his righteous wrath upon those sins. And yet, in Hosea 6 and verse 1, he announced to us the good news. He says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. God redeems. He reconciles. He buys back his bride, his gomer. And we know on this side of the cross that he buys us back with his own blood. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, paid the price to make you and I his. This is the story of God, Comer, and the gospel that brings them together, brings us together. And Hosea 6, the passage that I just read just a second ago, Hosea 6 invites us to respond to the gospel good news with these words. Hear them again. Come, let us return to the Lord. When you hear the news of God, Gomer, and the gospel, here's the invitation to respond. Come, let us return to the Lord. Return. Repent. It's an invitation to respond in repentance. Repentance is how we always respond to the gospel. 
I think when we hear the word repentance, we can think very quickly, okay, that's how we initially respond to the gospel. Like when I'm not in relationship with the Lord, I was lost, an unbeliever, I hear this news about who God is, who I am, and my Gomer-like unfaithfulness, then I'm invited to respond to the gospel in repentance. That's what I do. I respond to the gospel in repentance initially. But we don't just respond to the gospel with repentance initially. We do it continually. Like this is why... We've been gathering together during Lent and and saying a corporate confession of sin. It's it's a corporate repentance. This is how we continually respond to the gospel good news. Uh, Martin Luther probably said it best. The reformer Martin Luther, when he nailed his 95 theses to the the door of the, the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, do you know what thesis number one was? Thesis number one. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That's thesis one of the reason shades exist as a church. Like that there's Protestantism at all. When the Lord Jesus said repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. Repentance is how we continually respond to the gospel. What does that look like? Because my my fear is, my fear is that there are a lot of false ideas about repentance. And when we say it, when we start talking about it, what comes to mind is not the biblical concept, but something else. We've got to know, if, if this is supposed to be descriptive of the entirety of our lives as believers. It's a life of repentance. Then we got to know, what does real repentance look like? We don't want a false idea. And we're going to see in Hosea 7, very clearly, there are false ideas. That's what Hosea 7 is about. It gives us a picture of false repentance. Like, follow the line of logic that we've seen Since Hosea 4, even though God laid his people's sin bare in Hosea 4, even though he said that his wrath is coming on it in Hosea 5, even though he called them to repent in Hosea 6, their repentance will prove false in Hosea 6. They'll take action. It's fake and false action. And so God in Hosea 7 is going to call out their false repentance so that we might know. They might know, we might know what is wrong with what they're doing, what false repentance looks like. And so we may see real repentance through the lens of God, Gomer, and the gospel. So let's dive in to Hosea 7. And we're going to get two big pictures this morning, okay? Message is split in half. First one, we need to see what false repentance looks like. That's what's here. It's what Hosea 7 is, is about. So we need to see what does false repentance look like. And then second, obviously, we're going to take that and we're going to flip it on its head because we want to see what does real repentance look like. So first, let's look at false repentance. Hosea 7, we're going to start in verse 13. God says through the prophet, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them. But they speak lies I've got four things for us to see about false repentance. And verse 13 shows us number one. Number one, false repentance begins by believing falsehoods. 
False repentance begins by believing falsehoods. We read right here, God stands ready to redeem his people. That's Exodus language. That's salvific language. Like, like that, that language is hearkening back to, 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 to his people for them. It's hearkening them back to, do you remember the Exodus? Do you remember Egypt? Do you remember your bondage and slavery? Do you remember how I redeemed you? I stand ready to do that. Like that's, that's the picture that would come to their mind. That's what God says that he is ready to do. I would redeem them, but. But. What, what, what's, what's the problem? What stands in the way of that redemption? He says, but. They speak lies against me. This indictment is primarily aimed at the priesthood. In fact, all of verses 13 and 14 are primarily aimed at the priestly leadership. Verses 15 and 16 are going to be primarily aimed at military leadership. The priests have led the people into idolatry. Military leadership has led them into injustice, and the people have followed. The people have misplaced their trust by putting in idols and by putting it in military might. And right here we see their idolatry is a result of believing lies about the Lord. That's how idolatry starts. Like always. Do we not even see that from the very beginning of the book? Like Genesis chapter 3, does Satan not deceive our first parents in the Garden of Eden by telling them lies about who God is, what he said, what his intentions are? Idolatry begins with believing falsehood, lies about the Lord. The people in Hosea's day, they were believing that God was just one among many divine options. There are all sorts of gods, and, and he's just one amongst them, them all. He's just like Baal. That's the primary false god they were embracing. It's the primary one we have talked about because he was the most popular in the cultures that surrounded them. They embrace lies about God, that he's just like Baal, lies that made their God more acceptable to the culture of the ancient world that, were around, that was around them. I'm so thankful that this is no longer an issue. That we are not tempted to embrace lies about God in order to make him and ourselves more acceptable to the culture that is around us. Shades. Beware. Be very careful of religious leaders. These lies, they're coming from religious leaders right here in Hosea 7. Be very wary of religious leaders that speak lies about God who compromise the truth in order to earn the trust of the culture. We, we're, not at, we're not enemies with our culture. We, we love our culture, but loving them means speaking truth in love. Be very aware of those who compromise the truth in order to earn the trust of the culture. 2 Timothy 4.3 warns against such teachers who aim to please people. This is where false repentance begins begins with believing falsehoods. This is why, Shades, my aim is to speak to you truth from this word, even when it makes you email me. Because I would rather you email me than me just try to seek to please you. This is where false repentance begins with believing falsehoods. Why? 
Like, why does believing falsehoods lead to false repentance? That becomes clearer when we see the second thing about false repentance. Number two, false repentance fuels wrong feelings. So it begins with believing falsehoods, which fuels wrong feelings. You can see this clearly in verse 14. It says, they, the people, do not cry to me from the heart. Well, they cry. Make no mistake, they cry. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. For grain and wine, they gash themselves. And here's God's summary statement of what all that is to him. They rebel against me. Here's the deal. Baal required various ceremonies in exchange for blessings of fertility. Remember, he was a fertility god. He promised to give you crops and kids. So if you want grain, you want wine, you want grapes to grow, then you have these various things that have been laid out that Baal requires. Ceremonial weeping, ceremonial wailing, cutting oneself, gashing oneself, or he might require you to bring various sacrifices or even to engage in temple prostitution. Like there was, a, there was a whole list of various religious actions that, that served as your payment to Baal in order to purchase your desired blessings. Like Baal was basically a vending machine in the sky. You put in the proper payment, whatever those actions are, the right amount of weeping, the right amount of gashing, pick your blessing and you get it. That's the relationship that you share with, with Baal. Like, your heart doesn't have to be in that at all. It was, it was nothing more than a bartering system. You, you pay the fee, purchase the blessing. And that's what we see happening in verse 14. However, what we also see in verse 14 is that the people are not just going through these ceremonies for Baal. They're doing it for the Lord. They think, they, they, they think they're believers. They think this is how their relationship with God operates. Why? Because they have believed falsehoods. They've believed God's just like Baal. And so they don't feel rightly towards the Lord. They don't feel rightly towards the Lord who says, the, the Lord said this back in Hosea 6, in verse 6, he said, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice." I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, God says, all these ceremonies you go through, they mean nothing if they're divorced from my authentic heart. I'm after your heart. God was an anti-ceremony. He instituted an entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament. But that sacrificial system was never about you providing payment to God to get what you whatever blessing you want to pick. No, that sacrificial system was about God providing payment for you to get him. It's the other way around. It's the exact flip of pagan worship. Not bringing this sacrifice to God to pay him off and get the blessing I want. No, God has graciously provided a sacrifice to cover my sin so that I get him. I get him a real relationship with him, not a relationship with a vending machine in the sky. 
God says to his people, you can do all the sacrifices you want. You can weep, you can wail, you can come to church, you can receive communion, you can sing songs, you can give money and listen to sermons, but if your heart is detached, then you're treating the one true God like he's a vending machine. Put in the right coinage, the right religious action, get the blessing I want. It's a bartering system. It's false feelings. Do do you see what's happening here? The people are believing falsehoods, and as a result, they're feeling falsely about God. They're feeling falsely about themselves and their Gomer-like sins. They don't even see them as sins. And therefore, they're believing falsely and feeling falsely about the gospel, the good news. Their good news in Hosea 7, their gospel is I can pay off God with religion to get what I want. This is not repentance. This is not the return to the Lord that God is called for in Hosea 6 and verse 1. They think they're returning to God through these religious actions, but it's all false repentance, and it results in misplaced That's the third thing we need to see about false repentance. False repentance results in misplaced faith. You're trusting in empty religious actions to to get you in good with, with God. That's misplaced faith. See that with me in verses 15 and 16. God says, although I trained and strengthened their arms, where should that place their trust? Like God is the one who is trained and strengthen their arm. Therefore, they should trust God. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. They're like a treacherous bow. People's faith is not in the Lord. It's in their own strength. That's right here. It's a rebuke of their trust in their military might, which the Lord himself had provided. I trained and strengthened your arms. I provided that, but that doesn't lead you to trust in me. You should be saying, some may trust in horses and some may trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. But you're not. It should lead you to trust in me, but no, they devise evil against me. They return, but not upward. That word, upward, It's a very interesting term in Hebrew, and scholars debate how to translate it, because you could translate it a number of different ways. The word could mean most high. So they return, but not to the most high. That makes sense. But it could also be translated as a play off the name Baal. And in that case, it would mean no God. They return but it's to know God, not a real God, a false one. And I think that the ambiguity here in Hebrew, as it so often is, is on purpose. I think we're meant to be able to read this both ways. They return, but not to the Most High. They return, but it is to know God, a God who is no God at all. And thus, God says they are like a treacherous bow, a slack bow. A bow that when you put the arrow on it and and, and you pull it back, it's supposed to have power to send forth the arrow because obviously you're pulling it back in your time of need. But when you do this, the bow goes slack. There's no tension. There's no power in the thing you've trusted in to save you. God, 
God is saying their false repentance has resulted in misplaced faith, like putting faith and trust in a treacherous boat. They've trusted in their own military might and their own idols, things that cannot save them. False repentance results in misplaced faith, which will ultimately end in the most horrific of places, death and damnation. This is the fourth and final thing that we need to see about false repentance. False repentance ends in damnation. Look at all of verse 16 with me. We've only read part of it so far. Let's read the whole thing. They return, but not upward. They're like a treacherous bow. Their princes, here's the end. Here's where all of this is leading. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongues. Because they're speaking lies about me. That's where this all began, right? They spoke lies about me, believed in falsehoods that, that fueled false feelings, made them put their faith, they misplaced their faith in something else. And this is where it ends. Their princes shall fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongues. This shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. This passage started with God talking about how he stands ready to redeem his people, like he once did from Egypt. But the text ends with a complete reversal of that very idea. Instead of being redeemed from Egypt, they are damned to become the derision. Of Egypt. This is where false repentance ends. In death. Damnation. This, this is the only place that it can end. Logically. Because it doesn't turn or return to the God who is life. The God who created life, gave it, sustains it. If you rebel and turn away from him, logically, you've got nowhere to go but death. This is the logical place that false repentance ends, and it is also the right place, the righteous place for false repentance to end. We saw this last week as we talked about God's wrath. We saw God loves his people and he loves his creation and it is right and it is good for him to remove all who rebel and bring death into that creation and against his people. We have a word for that removal. It's death. This is the logical and right end of false repentance. False repentance begins by believing falsehoods about God that fuel wrong feelings about God and my Gomer-like sins, which results in misplaced faith in anything but the gospel. Thus it all ends in death and damnation. This is what false repentance looks like. But I love that conjunction. That's a gospel conjunction. But, Shades, I've got gospel good news. It's called real repentance. What does that look like? Again, I want us to see four things. And yes, all we have to do is flip what we've seen about false repentance. So, number one, real repentance begins with a recognition of the truth. 
Like if false repentance begins with believing falsehoods, then real repentance begins with a recognition of the truth, a recognition of who God is, a recognition of my Gomer-like sin and what it is. This is the starting place for real repentance. You see God as the only true God. You see his holiness. And in light of his holiness, you see sin for what it is, rebellion against him that deserves removal. It deserves wrath. And, and there can be no real repentance unless these truths are recognized. And here's the deal. Like, as soon as I say that, I know that there are people thinking, Yes, Jonathan, I agree with you. All of that is true for unbelievers. Like for people who don't know God yet. But that's not true for believers, for me. And Jonathan, Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for me. No wrath. Jonathan, you said that last week. I did. I did say that. I'll say it again. Because it is gloriously true. So you think, well then, repentance is no longer a thing for me, right? Like I have repented. Past tense. I have been forgiven. Past tense. I have been justified, our fancy word for made right with God. Jesus said, Jonathan, it is finished. So I don't need to be bothered with this whole repentance thing. Oh, but shades. Again, I would say that line of logic, that is a failure to recognize the truth. And real repentance begins with a recognition of the truth. What, what, what truth does that line of logic fail to recognize? Because it does say things that are gloriously true. It just doesn't say everything that's true. What, what truth does that line of logic fail to recognize? It fails to recognize what we've been talking about, who God is and who you are. Namely, that if you are a believer, God is your Father. And you are his child. And that is a real, dynamic relationship. It's not static. Like, it's real. It's a real relationship. And in that relationship, we do still really sin. And we do still need to repent and turn back to the Lord. James 5, verses 19 to 20. My brothers and sisters... He's talking to Christians, my brothers and sisters. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. In this relationship where we are sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, we still sin. And we still need to be brought back through repentance. Now, hang with me. We're going to get to it all, maybe not at all, but most of it. Now, you may immediately be thinking, Jonathan, are you saying that a Christian, as a Christian, when I sin, I lose my salvation? I'm placed under the wrath of God again. 
Therefore, I need to repent again, be saved again, justified again. No, no, a million times no. When you repent and come to faith in Jesus, you are united with him. Hold on to that word. You are united with him. You are made a part of God's family, and that is an unbreakable union. John 10, verses 27 to 29, says it most explicitly when Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. Everybody know what the definition of eternal is? It means it doesn't end. And just in case you don't know that, he follows that up with, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one is able to snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, who is greater than all, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. I and my Father are united in keeping you united to us. It's an unbreakable bond, an undoable justification. You're united. You've been made right with God now and forever because of what Christ has done. It is finished. In this conversation right here, in talking about Christians and repentance, I'm not talking about your union. I'm talking about your communion. I'm not talking about your justification. I'm talking about your sanctification. When, when my children, let's take my kids, when my kids sin, and they do, just in case anyone was wondering, a lot. When my children sin, my union with them is unaffected. Unaffected. They're still my children. I'm still their father. They can't do anything to become more my kids. I can't do anything to become like next level father. No, our union is unaffected. But our communion is affected. Our communion is something that's real and dynamic and can deepen. It can be grown in, matured in can be affected negatively. This is a real dynamic relationship. And it's similar to the real dynamic relationship you share with your heavenly father. This is why Jesus has us call him father. One of the reasons among many. Jesus' work in justifying you, making you right with God, is finished. And Philippians 1.6 is also true, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. It is finished and he's still doing something. What is he still doing? Philippians chapter 2 illustrates that. It says that God himself is empowering us. He's working through us so that we may work out our salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, he has made you right, justification, and he is working that out in the reality of your everyday life. He is making you right, sanctification. He has made you holy, and he is making you holy. The, the entire New Testament testifies to the fact that real repentance is a part of that sanctification process. That when we sin as believers, we are not, again, placed under the wrath of God, but we do experience his fatherly discipline 
so that we may be brought back into full communion through real repentance. Hebrews 12 probably talks about this most explicitly. Hebrews 12, uh, if you look at verse 4, it talks about the believer's continued struggle with sin. And then it goes on to talk about how the Lord, as a father, uses discipline to help us in that fight. That's what Paul calls it, fight. Put sin to death. Be the image he uses in Romans 6. And Hebrews 12 talks about how the Lord uses discipline in order to help us. Just like I use discipline to help my kids fight against their sin. The Lord uses discipline to help me fight against sin. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 5. The author's speaking to the church, to Christians, and says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? So here's the exhortation. He's about to quote Proverbs 3 that addresses you as sons. Here's how you, what he's saying is here's how you can know that you are a son or a daughter of God. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? My son, my daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And the author of Hebrews goes on to comment, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons and daughters. Verse 10, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Author of Hebrews says, when we sin, God disciplines us for our good because he loves us like a parent, loves a child, and he wants to bring us back into full communion with him. He wants to guide us into daily holiness. Yes, we have been made holy, justified, but through daily discipline, he is making us holy, sanctifying us, fitting us to be what he has declared we are. That's the central ethic of the New Testament. Become who you are. He's justified you, said this is true of you. Now he empowers you and works that out in real time. If you want to see a scriptural real-time example of God doing this, then just go to 1 Corinthians 11 sometime. In 1 Corinthians 11, there there were Corinthian Christians who Paul says were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 27. What were they doing? How were they taking the Lord's Supper? These are Christians. People who put faith and trust in Jesus. How are they taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? What he doesn't mean is he doesn't mean that they're unworthy in the sense that they haven't been justified by Jesus, made right with God. No, they had been. They've put their faith and trust in God, been made right through the perfect work of Christ on the cross. So how are they taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner if they're united to Jesus? What Paul unpacks is that these believers were sinning against one another and they were unrepentant about it. They were sinning against one another, unrepentant about it. They were breaking family communion. And then they were participating in a meal that claims our communion is not broken. That's, that's, what this, that's why we call it communion. 
At this table, you commune in two directions. Yes, you commune with the Lord. This meal says because of what Jesus has done through his broken body and his blood poured out, I'm at peace with God and I can commune with him. But we also gather around this table together as a family. We do this together. It's a way of us communing with one another, saying we are connected and at peace with one another through Christ. Paul says that's not true of you. You're not at peace with your brothers and sisters in Jesus. As a result, you're not at peace with Jesus. You're not communing with him. And yet you're taking this meal that claims communion. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 32 that as a result, they are experiencing the gracious discipline of the Lord. He looks at them and he says, God's disciplining you to wake you up. He actually says it's for this reason that some of you are sick and some of you have fallen asleep. It means died. Saying that's God disciplining, trying to wake your community up. It's the gracious discipline of the Lord. This is what he says explicitly in 1 Corinthians 11 and 32. He says, but when we are judged by the Lord, he doesn't mean judged, like condemned. He's going to get real explicit about that. He says, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. When the Lord exercises discipline on his children, it's to wake them up, bring them back into full communion with himself. Because people who never repent, that's only true of one kind of person. A person who's not truly a child of God. This is God's grace upon your life. It's because, Corinth, it's because of your union with Christ that God is disciplining you to restore your communion through Christ. This is a call for Corinth to recognize the truth about who God is and who they are. He's their father. They are his children. And they're being disciplined to be brought to real repentance. This is where real repentance begins. With a recognition of the truth of who God is and who we are. And that recognition is meant to fuel right feelings. This is the second thing that we need to see. We're going to breeze through these last three. This is the second thing that we need to see about real repentance. If false repentance fueled wrong feelings... And the second thing here is real repentance fuels right feelings. What are those feelings? Like, What should we feel when we experience real repentance? And as soon as we begin to talk about this, this is the area, this is the conversation. This is why I think some people want to say that repentance has no place in the Christian life. And that because of Jesus' finished work, you're right before God and repentance is a thing of the past. I think that they say that out of a concern about the kind of feelings repentance will produce in a person. Feelings of grief, sorrow, pain, guilt, shame. Like, isn't that what repentance is? Isn't repentance just us feeling really bad about ourselves so that God will forgive us? Isn't repentance just, I gotta, I gotta attain this level of feeling bad where God's satisfied with that so he'll forgive me? No. No, that's not what repentance is. That actually describes the false feelings of the people in Hosea 7. They wept. They wailed. They gashed themselves as a kind of payment to God to forgive them. Like, let's make sure that God knows we feel bad enough about ourselves so that he'll forgive. That, that's false repentance. 
You may think, okay, good, Jonathan. So you're saying we shouldn't feel things like grief and sorrow because Christ has dealt with that on the cross. He bore all of our grief, so we shouldn't feel grief anymore, right? Yes and no. Don't oversimplify things that are actually very complex. There's more than one kind of grief. And yes, there is a grief that produces shame and self-loathing, and it ultimately produces death as it destroys you from the inside out. That's not what we want at all. Christ has borne all of that upon the cross. But there is also a grief, a sorrow for sin, that produces conviction and confession and ultimately leads to life through repentance and reconciliation. You can see the difference in 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul, as we already know from 1 Corinthians 11, he's had just a few issues with the Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians 7, we find out there's actually a letter he wrote between 1 and 2 Corinthians that we don't have. And when he first wrote it, he felt like he'd been a little too harsh. And like he might have hurt their feelings a little too much. He tells us about it in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 8. He says, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it at first. But he doesn't regret it anymore. Why? For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief. A godly grief. So that you suffer no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul says, I ultimately rejoice that I grieved you, not because you were grieved, but because it produced a godly grief that led you to repentance. This is a good grief to feel about our sin. The Holy Spirit himself is grieved when we sin. Ephesians 4 and verse 20 tells us, verse 30 tells us that. And so he convicts us. The Holy Spirit convicts us, brings good, godly grief, grief that's from God, to bring us to repentance so that our communion with God might be restored. The right feelings that real repentance produces are feelings that hate sin. I hate it. I want to turn from it. I want to run to Christ. This is what repentance is. It's a turning. It's a turning from sin and self and a turning to trusting in Christ. Turning and trusting. They're two sides of the same coin. Or you could say repentance and faith. Repentance is turning from something. Faith is turning to something. And this is how we respond to the gospel. This is what real repentance is. A turn, real repentance, and we talk about this, real repentance is not going through religious motions like making out a long list of all your sins and making sure that you go through each one and you check them off and you make sure, okay, I've got to repent for that, I've got to repent for that. If I don't get them all out, then I'm not practicing real repentance and God has not really forgiven me. That's impossible, Shades. That's religious motion. That's what the people in Hosea 7 were doing. I go through this religious ceremony and God will forgive me. I make a list of my sins. I go through them all and God will forgive me. That, that, that's not how, you couldn't do that if you tried. Psalm 19 and verse 12 says, who can discern his errors? 
declare me innocent from hidden faults. Real repentance is not about this ceremonial process. It's about a disposition of the heart. A disposition that turns from sin and self to trusting in Christ. That's what repentance is. I turn from sin, repent. I turn to Christ, faith. You can't have one of those without the other. Like turning from and to go together. Repentance and faith, they go together. You can't have one without the other. This is why when I began, I read to you Martin Luther's quote where he said that the whole of the Christian life is the entire thing is a life of repentance. He said that because the entire Christian life is a life of faith. The whole Christian life is a life of turning from sin and self and turning to Christ. It's a life of repentance and faith. Repentance and faith are the inhale, exhale of the Christian life. It's the very means by which we abide in Christ. We live turning from sin and self day by day, moment by moment, and turning to Christ. That's the result of real repentance, and that's the third thing we need to see about real repentance. Number three, real repentance results in a return to the only Savior, Jesus. Real repentance results in a return to the only Savior, Jesus. We live this way, turning to Jesus. This is exactly what's described in 1 John chapter 1, verses uh, 7 through 9. This is probably the most famous passage about how the Christian lives, confessing their sin, repenting, a repentant lifestyle. 1 John 1, verses 7 and 9 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what walking in the light looks like. That's what the whole passage is about. If we walk in the light, let me tell you what walking in the light looks like. Confessing and cleansing. It's true, shades, it's true. Christ died once for all to pay the price for my sin, past, present, and future. And, and as I walk with him day by day, I get to experience him applying that forgiveness that he purchased day by day. That's what the text says. If we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. That's a present active indicative verb. I know that you don't care, but what that means is it's an ongoing continuous action. It's not just past tense. You are experiencing the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus in the present. He's cleansing you. Jesus is cleansing you and forgiving you is not just something you look back upon with fondness, but you experience it today by his faithfulness. It is right to say, I have been forgiven, justified. And it is right to say, I am being forgiven, sanctified. It is right to say, I have a real union and real communion with God the Father through Christ his Son by the Holy Spirit. This is the result of real repentance. And it doesn't end in grief or sorrow or self-loathing or death. No, fourth and final thing for us to see, real repentance ends in celebration. Real repentance ends in celebration. This is the reality 
of every single text we have read this morning about real repentance. Go back and read them all. James 5, Philippians 1, Hebrews 12, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 7, 1 John 1. Go back, read through them. They all end with celebration. Because real repentance is a turning to God, it must end in celebration. It ends in the restoration of, of communion with Christ. We sang about this at the beginning of our service, did we not? Come ye sinners, you're saying true repentance, it's a grace that draws you nigh, restores that communion, brings you near to, to God. It's a restoration of fellowship with the Father. It's a, it's a restoration of communion with Christ. It's a restoration of keeping in step with the Spirit. That's how Galatians 5 puts it. Real repentance ends in celebration, which is why we rejoice to live a life of repentance, a life of, of turning to true life in Christ. Yes, real repentance begins with a recognition of my sin for what it is, but even in doing that, I'm recognizing God for who he is, my loving Father who stands ready with arms wide open. This fuels right feelings, which yes, Include grief that I've grieved the Holy Spirit with my Gomer-like sin, but that grief keeps me from the grave and it points me towards life. It results in my returning to Christ. And thus, repentance ends in celebration of the gospel. This is real repentance through the lens of God, Gomer, and the gospel. Shades. May we be a people who live this way. A people of real, not a people who go through religious motions trying to drum up emotions to pay off God for, for what we want, but a people of real repentance because what we want is Him. Union and communion with Him. Lord, make us a people of real repentance. Awesome. Thank you for listening to that, and hopefully you were really blessed by that message. If you are in need of more uh, resources during the season of Lent, we have some available for you. If you go to our website, shadesvalley.org, you'll be able to download or see a digital copy of our Lenten reading guide where it will have each scripture, scripture passage for each day through the season of Lent. And we're also doing a daily prayer on Instagram Live every day at 8 a.m. that you can join in with us. We'll be reading through the scripture for that day and then praying together. It's just a really good time to, to join together virtually in community uh, in that way. So just wanted to give you a heads up on all that. And this has been another episode of Shades Midweek, and we will see you next time.